Uh, yeah, I'm Sam. Uh, I go to the evening service these days, uh, so apologies if uh, I haven't met some of you. Uh, come up afterwards and introduce, myself, introduce yourself. I'd be uh, very pleased to meet you. Um, thanks for having me. It's great to be back here uh, in the morning. Uh, many of you will know... Uh, well, many of you know me. Many of you know uh, my job. I am a Bible translation consultant. Uh, I work with the Bible Society... And uh, that means that I work with, uh, principally, a whole lot of Aboriginal people around the country, helping them to translate the Bible accurately and clearly into their languages. Uh, so recently, I was up in Arnhem Land. Uh, I got a picture of, of one guy that I was uh, meeting with there. This, uh, this is Charlie. He's a Guningu speaker. He lives in Manangrida, which is on the top, uh, the north coast of Arnhem Land. And uh, so he's one of the speakers of a fairly small language called Guningu. I was also meeting with some Njebuna translators as well. Uh, this is Charlie. He is currently fixing some fishing lines for us to go fishing. Uh, it was a work trip, you see. We went fishing. Um, <laughs> we caught a whole bunch of barramundi, which just enrages all of my friends who are fishermen, that, like, I don't even care about fishing, and we took a, took a, a little line and cast it out, and, like, fish just jumped out of the water. It was incredible. <laughs> Uh, on the fire, just in the foreground, is not fish. Uh, that's actually ibis that Charlie caught on the way in. Uh, he told me to stop driving. Wait, ran out, grabbed a bin chicken. Um, I'm pretty confident that it tasted better than a bin chicken from Macquarie University. Um, it was still pretty chewy, though. Anyway, um, that's not what I want to talk to you about. Uh, this is Charlie, and uh, Charlie is my brother. Uh, I mean, he's a brother in Christ, uh, but he's also my brother in the kinship system that exists up in Arnhem Land. Uh, it's, it's quite a common thing around Aboriginal Australia and elsewhere in the world as well. Uh, anthropologists call it subsection systems. Uh, but up in Arnhem Land, they have a thing, uh, usually in English they call it skin names. And it's a way of relating to people. Uh, it gives you a connection to all sorts of different people in, in lots of different ways. It gives you responsibilities, certain restrictions, some benefits of kinship, of, of family, essentially. And so Charlie gave me a skin name, uh, which fits me into this system. And uh, so he is my brother, because he gave me the skin name Gela in their language. Uh, in the next uh, picture here. This is uh, the group of people that we went fishing with. Uh, so there's Charlie in the background. His wife, Margot, is in the blue and her sister, Delia, uh, in the cream top with the, with the billy can. So I can call them by their skin name as well or actually by the family relationship name because they are the wife and, and wife's sister of my brother, uh, then I can call them Gakali, which is, means a whole range of things, but including sister-in-law. That little girl is Charlie's granddaughter, so she's my granddaughter as well. Because I fit into this system now, there's a whole lot of relationships that I now have. I'm, I am related to a whole lot of people. I have kinship with all these uh, people in a whole variety of different ways that wasn't true a month ago. And it's not only close family by blood. There's all sorts of um, of different connections. Uh, the next picture is one of these charts that helps you understand things if you already understand it, but doesn't help you if you don't. Uh, <laughs> but basically what this means is, given where you are on this chart, it tells you, well, 
what the next generation's name will be. Um, so this is me. I'm, I'm Gela, spelt with a K, but pronounced with a G. Um, my sister would be Galajan. And these lines here are the kind of appropriate people that I can marry. So assuming that Christy and I married properly, let's just assume that, uh, she is Bulanjan over here. Her, uh, the, the generations come down through matrilineal descent, so that it's according to your mother. So you can work out that, okay, my mother is Bangadijan, kind of the next one up from me. But it also means that other people that you come across who aren't necessarily blood relations, you, uh, you can be related to them as well. Because uh, I can see Mick just there. If Rosie, for example, was that top right-hand corner, Ngarijan, if that was her skin name, then she would be my wife's grandmother or granddaughter. Same thing. And Mike, uh, Mick, sorry, uh, would probably be my grandfather or possibly my brother. But it means that, like, Mick and I aren't closely related at all. But if I happen to know people's skin names, then I know how I am related to them. In Now... The point of this talk is not a lecture on anthropology. Uh, it's just that entering into a different situation in life can force you to reevaluate your connections to other people. In this world, up in Arnhem Land, the pattern of community forces you to think about other people in a different way. In this case, it's not necessarily better or worse, it's just different. Christianity, being part of God's family forces us to think about other people in a different way than we otherwise would. And look, I'll be happy enough to argue that because it's God's way, it is a better system than what we might come up with otherwise. And this passage from Paul's letter to this church in Thessalonica, this passage is one of many where Paul lays out for us this kind of focus on other people. How do we think about other people when we are Christian? And the overwhelming feeling that I get from how Paul thinks about other people is this, that it's not about me. And he talks about this, you know, it's, it's, not about, it's not about me, it's not about you. He talks about this in three ways, in joy, in suffering, and in prayer. Now, one of the most remarkable statements, I think, that Paul makes about this, just about anywhere in his writing, is the last couple of verses of chapter 2. It's there on page 1682 of the Church Bibles. Uh, why was Paul so eager to come and visit this church? Why was he so eager to come and see them? Because for Paul, his following Jesus, his service of Christ, is all about people like them. See there in verse 19. What is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of the Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Yet yeah, you are our glory and joy, he says. The Christians in this town, Thessalonica, are Paul's glory and his joy. These, these Thessalonian Christians, well, Paul brought the gospel to them. He taught them, he served them, he prayed for them, he wrote to them, he agonized over them about how they were doing. He sent messages to find out how they were and encourage them. He says, when Jesus returns, they will be his crown, 
his glory in the presence of the returning Lord Jesus. I kind of get this picture of, of Jesus welcoming Paul, embracing him, and pointing over to the group of Thessalonian Christians and saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Because they're with Jesus as well. The Thessalonians are Paul's crown of glory, the, the reward for his Christian service, the, the thing that he can boast about. See, it's not about you, it's about other people. I don't know if you've ever had uh, this sense about other Christians. Uh, I had this quite strongly a few years ago uh, about the evening service of this church. Uh, so many of you know, I used to be on staff here uh, a decade or so, a bit more uh, these days. And uh, so I was an assistant minister and particularly I looked after the evening service. And then we went away for a few years, we went up to the States uh, and did a few other things. And then several years later, came back and I came back and visited the evening service. And there was a handful of people who I'd spent quite a bit of time with several years ago who I could see they had grown, they had matured, they were serving uh, loads of people, they were doing all of these wonderful Christian things in the service. And it was an incredible joy to see how they had, uh, they had grown, they had lived for Jesus in all sorts of different ways. I'm not suggesting in any way, shape or form that the vitality of the evening service is in any way related to me. But there's been a couple of people that I spent quite a bit of time with, serving, teaching, praying for them, writing to them, because, you know, Facebook, writing on Facebook counts, doesn't it? Uh, and years on, I see them having grown and matured and they're serving and they're doing the same thing with other Christians. And it's incredible joy to see their growth in the Lord. Following Jesus means, I mean, it means getting right with God, it means having our rebellion counted, our sin dealt with, a new spirit given to us, as the Thessalonians did, turning from idols to follow the true and living God. But it's not just about us. Following Jesus means that the people that we serve as Christians, that we serve with, we'll get to see them walk with Jesus for all eternity. So I'm really confident that when Jesus returns, a bunch of the youth leaders at this church will be able to look at a bunch of the youth and say, these people are my joy and my crown because God used me in their lives. I'm confident that Bible study group leaders and group members will be able to say the same thing of other members of their groups. I'm confident that parents and scripture teachers and cornerstone leaders and co-workers and family members and coaches and disciples and hosts and letter writers and prayers and compassion sponsors, fellow students, friends, all sorts of walks of life will be able to say the same thing of other Christians, that God has used me in their life. And it's an incredible joy to see them here with me. Because Paul shows us that really the normal pattern of living as a Christian. It's not about you. Normal pattern of the Christian life is to be involved in other Christians' lives, to encourage them, to build them up in the Lord. In the long run, that'll turn out to be a great joy. 
Maybe in the short term as well. Maybe not. Because as Paul goes on to say, there's quite a lot of suffering that happens to Christians. Pick it up in chapter 3. Paul says, When we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens, and we sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. Now, the background of of all of this, uh, you can pick up and read in Acts 16 and 17. The potted version is Paul and co. come to Thessalonica. They proclaim the gospel of Jesus uh, in the synagogues to the people there. And there's a big mob. There's a riot. And Paul is chased away from the city after just a couple of weeks. He's chased down the road to a town called Berea. The mob follows him to Berea. And uh, Paul ends up getting spirited out of the, the town and sent along to Athens. And Timothy comes and joins him later on. And then, as he says here, when Paul is finally kind of twisted up enough with worry about the Thessalonians, in verse 2, he sends Timothy from Athens to encourage them. To encourage them in their faith, verse 3, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid in some way that the tempter had tempted you and that our labours might have been in vain. What kind of suffering is Paul talking about here? Well, it's probably Paul's general teaching that Christians will be persecuted for their faith in Jesus. He certainly says that elsewhere. It's very likely that the mob in Thessalonica didn't calm down immediately when Paul left and left all of his followers alone. It's quite likely that they kept harassing them in various ways as well. So the church in Thessalonica is quite likely to be suffering persecution. But I wonder, actually, I think it's possible that the events that happened to Paul in particular is what he's talking about here. He says, I was, I was really worried about you because you were really worried about me and the persecution that I was feeling and, and suffering and I had to kind of move from town to town and I was really, really worried that you would be all churned up because of the persecution that I was facing. He's worried for the Thessalonians that they'll be taking it hard because Paul is having a hard time because he's being a Christian. See, they're both thinking about the other person here. There's a famous thing that C.S. Lewis said about humility. Uh, It's not so much that you think less of yourself, it's just that you think of yourself less. I think that's what both groups of people here are doing both Paul and the Thessalonians, they're they're worried for the other person in the midst of their suffering and their trials. Now, Paul's teaching, of course, is quite right. Persecution was part part and parcel of Paul's life in particular, and as he teaches, it definitely comes to Christians, that's for sure. I want to read to you just a few things from the church news email that comes out each week from the last several weeks. There's always a prayer point for Christians in a different country. Here's the last couple of weeks. Pray for Christians in Iraq. Iraqi Christians experience discrimination, harassment and violent persecution without protection from the state. 
Huge numbers of Christians were driven out of their towns and villages in 2014 when the Islamic State attempted to establish an Islamic caliphate in the north and many have yet to return home. Iraq is home to a number of traditional Orthodox and Catholic churches but, are, but all are seriously affected by intolerance, discrimination and persecution from local leaders, government authorities and Islamic extremist groups. Believers from Muslim backgrounds experience intense pressure from their families, clan leaders and communities, which can lead to being expelled from their family, losing the means to get married, or being forcibly divorced and losing their inheritance and their children. They may be arrested and prosecuted under blasphemy laws if they are accused of trying to convert Muslims. The week before, pray for Christians in Mali. Mali has gone through great political instability in the, past, in the last few years, which has strengthened Islamic extremist groups and expanded their territory. This has put Christians at greater risk of violence. Islamic extremists abduct people, including Christians, to kill them or keep them in sexual, sexual slavery. Others are put under pressure to join the groups where they will be forcibly converted to Islam and made to fight. Christian homes, businesses and properties are targeted, keeping many in poverty. Christian missionaries and NGOs in the north cannot operate safely. There is a real danger of being attacked or abducted by extremists. If somebody from a Muslim background becomes a Christian and escapes persecution by extremists, they will still face pressure from their family to give up their new faith. This can include being divorced, losing all the support of their family, social isolation, and even losing access to their children. Now, unless you think the persecution only comes to people in Muslim-majority countries, the week before, pray for Christians in China. Tightening restrictions and increasing surveillance are putting Christians in China under intensifying pressure as the Communist Party seeks to limit all threats to its power. Surveillance in China is amongst the most oppressive and sophisticated in the world, and Christian leaders are particularly vulnerable to persecution, including imprisonment or, in a small number of cases, abduction. It remains illegal for under-18s to attend church. Many churches are being monitored and closed, no matter whether they are independent or belong to the three-self-patriotic movement, the state-monitored churches. Those who convert from other religions also face persecution. If the convert from Islam or Tibetan Buddhism is discovered by their family or community, they are usually threatened and physically harmed, all in an effort to win them back to their original faith. Previous weeks, pray for Christians in the Maldives, Christians in Myanmar, Saudi Arabia, India, Sudan, Afghanistan, and it goes on. Persecution comes to Christians. So how do we deal with persecution when it comes? How do, we, well, how do we pray for people? How do we deal with persecution when it comes to us as well? Now here Paul, I think, is talking about persecution for being Christian. So facing the kind of things that I've been talking about here, uh, the oppression that comes because you are a follower of Jesus, which is distinct from suffering in general. Not all suffering is persecution. And so the response may not always be the same. It might be, but not always. I think we've got three models here of how Paul and the Thessalonians think about persecution. Firstly, from Paul. Even when Paul is fairly beset on all sides, Paul has been through a tough time. If you read through Acts 16 and 17, and more of Acts, Paul's life was not an easy one. Even when he's beset on all sides, he sends what aid he can to the Christians who need it, who are at risk of being led astray in the midst of the events that are hard to take. Paul's looking out for those other Christians, even in the midst of what's going on for him. He prays for them. He finds incredible joy in their, uh, their walk of faith. 
He says in verse 8, Now we really live because we know that the Thessalonians are standing strong. And Timothy. Timothy's a bit of a champion of service and encouragement to everyone, really. Uh, Whenever he pops up in the letters, he's just doing a great job of hanging out with people and encouraging them. He brings them messages. uh, He hangs out with people in tough spots. He encourages them when times are tough. And the Thessalonians themselves, as well, are an example of standing firm, having turned to the true and living God. Remember, they're a model to all the other believers in the region of their way of life. All three of these, Paul, Timothy, the Thessalonian church, they all expect that this suffering is going to come and they're all working to encourage others in the middle of it. And in doing that, all of them are firmed up themselves and strengthened by God. I think you see that in Paul's final prayer for this church. Uh, We see that there from verse 11. As I read it, just have a think about who you might be able to pray this prayer for. Chapter 3, verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Taking Paul as an example, who might we pray this prayer for? Well, maybe it's Christians in Nigeria or Dubai or Cambodia. Maybe it's your mother-in-law. Maybe it's some old school friends who are living a ways away now. Maybe it's the person sitting next to you. Notice that there's a practical element there in verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. Paul wants to come to the Thessalonians, who he's praying for, so that he can supply whatever it is that they need. Which might mean that you could be the answer to your own prayer, I think. If you're praying for somebody, that God would strengthen them and cause them to overflow in love and be, you know, be standing up under persecution and various other things, and God gives you the opportunity to also come to them and supply what they need, How could you do that, do you think? What are some practical things that you can pray for, for other people in situations that you know well? One way to think about this might be to... Well, that person may be the person sitting next to me or behind me or... What would it look like for that person who I'm praying this prayer for, to have their love increase and overflow for others. What would that look like in their life? Or to start thinking about it differently, turn it around. Maybe if they're praying for you, if they prayed that your love would overflow for others and that you would be strengthened in the Lord Jesus, what are the things that would change in your life? What, what are the things that, under God, you could do 
for those around you. In God's strength, what could you do to help the people sitting around you also do these things? How can you think practically about the the kind of things that Paul prays here for the people that we are meeting with now, but also for the persecuted Christians in China and Myanmar and Saudi Arabia and wherever else? Because the setting for all of this, the setting for Paul's joy, the setting for the Thessalonians bearing up under suffering and persecution, and the setting for the great joy and and, and confidence that Paul has, and so he prays for people that God would work in their lives, the setting for all of this is the certainty that he has, the certainty of hope that Jesus is coming again. He's coming again with all of his holy ones. When he returns, he knows that the Thessalonians will be his crown of glory. Jesus is coming again. So earlier we read Psalm 46. And yeah, there's this great confidence in that psalm that God will will end war, he will provide comfort. Jerusalem is the stronghold because God is with his people. In this letter to the Thessalonians, Paul is super confident that ultimately Jesus will end war, he will provide comfort, he's coming again. He is a mighty refuge and strength. He is the helper who is always found in times of trouble. And so we can rejoice in other Christians. We can be strengthened in times of persecution. We can pray really clearly for other people because of our confidence in Jesus. He's coming again. He's a mighty refuge and strength. And he's with us. So let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you have done in our lives uh, to bring us to you, that we might know you. We can turn from idols to, to you, the true and living God. And that we thank you for the family that you have included us in. Thank you for making us to be part of your people. And Lord, we rejoice in the, in the work that you are doing and the people around us. Help us to continue to be part of that. Uh, Strengthen us in times of, of suffering and persecution. Give us joy in other Christians. And we pray for all of us, for us, for those around us, that you will strengthen our hearts, that our love will increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. We pray that we will be blameless and holy in your presence when our Lord Jesus comes again. Amen.